and welcome to Thinking with Opera. My name is Frank Finlay, I'm Professor of German Language and Literature at the University of Leeds and I'm absolutely delighted to be here today with Paul Mason. Paul is a multi-award winning journalist, broadcaster and filmmaker. His reputation and the prizes and accolades he's gained are too numerous to mention, but rests largely on Paul's reports from the front line of major world events over the past two decades, as economics editor for the BBC, for example, and with a portfolio that included culture at Channel 4 News. In 2016, Paul quit public service TV journalism in order to release himself from its impartiality constraints, and he's been freelance ever since. He contributes weekly columns to The New Statesman, The Guardian, Freitag in Germany, Le Monde Diplomatique, The New European, amongst many others. And he's a frequent guest on opinion-forming TV and radio shows. Paul is also the author of seven books covering contemporary economics and politics, and which have established him as a front-ranked public intellectual in the best European tradition. His latest book which is a response to the threat posed by the rise of populism and extreme right movements around the world, is entitled How to Stop Fascism. Paul has also written and broadcast on musing, reflecting interests developed since his youth, and he's as much at home in Wigan Casino, and as we're now about to find out, in Wagner's Ring Cycle. So welcome, Paul. Well, Frank, thank you for that amazing introduction. And we should also mention, uh, full disclosure, that we went to school together and played in a band together. And as good Catholic schoolboys, or ex-Catholic in my case, that being will determine our consciousness, I think. Indeed, yeah. And it being a brass band, I was talking to, to a trumpet ensemble recently saying, you know, your repertoire, where would it be without Wagner? But that's another story. So your, your interest in Wagner, where does it stem from? How did it develop? And, you know, in the, in the background of what we've just heard about your career, what do you make of Wagner as a political activist, particularly around the time of the mid-century? As, as a trained musician, and, I, you know, I studied music at university, I was a child musician. I was thinking, what was the first piece of Wagner I heard? I've now realised it was Adrian Bolt's Guide to the Instruments of the Orchestra, which was a record everyone had in the 60s. And um, in it, Adrian Bolt narrates little excerpts showing you different instruments. And I can remember the horn call from Siegfried. And I can remember Bolt's words going into it. He says, this is the soul of man being called from the depths of the forest. Gone are the rather jolly sounds of Mozart. Now we have the soul of man being summoned from the depths of the forest. And that always stuck with me. And I have no idea what Siegfried was. I had no idea who Wagner was. But that's probably when I was five or six or seven years old, I heard that. And then the next thing is, as a trombonist, and you too were a brass player, as a trombonist, there is one piece of the repertoire that you come across very early and can be played. And that is uh, the Prelude to Act Three of Lohengrim, where it's got a fantastic triple octave worth of brass full throttle, no brass player can avoid it. And you, you were speaking about the trumpet ensemble. The, the more I've got to understand Wagner, the more I've understood him as a writer for brass and strings. I know this sounds, you know, sort of 1950s style 
you know, simplification, but he is a, a superb and probably the greatest brass writer. He understood and he imbued the brass ensemble inside the orchestra with all kinds of symbolism and all kinds of resonances. It doesn't get anywhere else before him in the classical repertoire. I think Mahler then does the same for the woodwind, but there would be no Wagner sound uh, and no Wagner ethos without a very wide and unique set of brass instruments. And so, yeah, then from the Lohengrin Act Three, we studied the overture to the Meister Singer at school. It didn't really get me, but the opera that got me was in 1982. So I'd have been 22 when, what's his name now, Zieberberg. Yeah, Hans-Jürgen Zieberberg. Hans-Jürgen Zieberberg produced this amazing surrealist film of Parsifal, and I went to watch it, and I watched it again, and I bought the box set, and I played it over and over again, and that finally got me over the threshold of a superficial listening to Wagner to an absolute depth engagement with it. And it's lucky that we're, that, I think, is the, the one we're going to talk about, which opera and author are doing. Yeah, I'm afraid my interest was rather less lofty initially. I mean, I... I um... I think, like many people, Wagner is out there in the popular conscious, even if you don't know who he was and what he was. Um, uh, and I was thinking about this um, preparing for our conversation today. My first remembrance of it is actually from a film, one of these Sunday afternoon um, matinees, which I, I had to look up. It's called Hotel Sahara, and it's kind of like a an hello, hello in the, the desert. And to cut a long story short, there's a hotel and various kind of invading forces come. And the Germans arrive, and of course, it's the ride of the Valkyrie. And I remember saying to my dad, God, that's great music, Dad, what's that? And he said, it's, it's Wagner. And that kind of stuck. But unfortunately, you know, for, and perhaps as a bit of an occupational hazard as someone involved in German studies, that um, association of Wagner's music with, you might say, aggressive German warfare, waging of warfare, and all that uh, entailed and where it led in the Holocaust meant that I was kind of very much put off Wagner for a long time. And I I suppose if you were to put it in today's parlance, I probably in my own head cancelled Wagner, for me at least, over-determined as my, my view of him was by this association with, with National Socialism, which was cemented, I seem to remember, watching this wonderful documentary about Leni Riefenstahl, the wonderful, horrible world of Leni Riefenstahl, and you've got the Meistersinger, the Nuremberg, all of that stuff, you know? And even though I you have a kind of profound interest in, in classical music, I shunned Wagner for quite a long time. And I have found, um, in kind of getting my head around our conversation today... It's been absolutely transformative, really engaging with the works, free of that that prejudice with which I was associating them. And, you know, Parsifal, which we'll be talking about, uh, the transcendent beauty of that is, is, has actually blown me, blown me away. What's interesting, isn't it, is that everyone who studies or encounters Wagner has to get over that problem. Now, getting over it doesn't mean shunting it to one side. It's been absolutely... The relationship to to German nationalism, to anti-Semitism, and indeed to nihilism, some of the philosophical underpinnings of fascism, has been central to my engagement with with him. I made a a series with BBC called Wagner, Power, Sex and Revolution a few years ago. And I insisted that, you know, in actual fact, you have to read everything through the politics. And as we 
to use the latest word, decolonize, but we've we've done this before under other guises. As we contextualize artistic production within its social context and therefore the oppressive social structures and ideologies that were prevalent at the time of creation, and for Wagner, central to the creation, all you can achieve, for my view, is a kind of noble tension between the beauty of the work and the ugliness of where it comes from. And in that tension somewhere sits a man, a human being, who was trying to create beauty out of anxiety. Unfortunately, his anxieties were mainly about Jews and indeed modernity, which goes, which is an even deeper sort of tell of, of fascism. I don't think Wagner was a fascist. I think he was an anti-Semite, a systemic anti-Semite, but he was above all an anti-modernist. And anti-modernism in the work I've been doing about the modern far right is the signature tune. So although the modern far right aren't that keen on Wagner, we have to be very almost obsessive if we're going to enjoy this work in understanding what it is that we're enjoying. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it. I mean, you really, you really hit the nail on the head there. And if there have been in the reception of, of Wagner and the masses written about that reception, there's been a tendency to break it off the artworks from the person. But I mean, you know, what you're saying is you shouldn't and mustn't do that. But you have to do it in a very nuanced way. It's interesting. I mean, I know you've um, recently returned from Ukraine, and um, yeah, there's this group, the Wagner group that's been been mentioned now, you know so that that association you know, with with nihilism you know anti anti-modernism I and mean, putin's kind of invasion of ukraine is is trying to turn back the clock on on on, on modernity in in many ways and the fact that the i, I believe I, um, that the wagner group is because the it's neo-fascist nihilist leader you know who has the the nordic runes tattooed is is an aficionado you know yeah of course, Russian ethno-nationalism is not German ethno-nationalism, no. and, and German ethno-nationalism is or Aryan nationalism is very key to to Wagner. And as we'll see when we discuss Parsifal, it is key to the genesis of Parsifal. When I visited the Deutsche Oper in Berlin, we are dealing with extremely liberal and leftist producers and dramaturgs, and they could not work with this material if they did not begin by sorting out and getting clear in their minds that there is beauty within it, and the beauty within it indeed stems from Wagner the human being, Wagner the thwarted lover, Wagner the human trying to explain the condition of being human. Let me just use an analogy, but it's one that opera lovers might get. The, the, the dramaturg at the, uh, at the Deutsche Oper said to me, is Beckmesser in Die Meistersinger, is Beckmesser this figure of fun who sings a little bit of klezmer music? Is he Jewish? Is he meant to be Jewish? Is he an anti-Semitic caricature? And the, the answer that they gave to themselves, and this is a couple of years ago when they were producing it, is no, because in the end, Wagner loves him. Wagner redeems him. Those are the kind of conversations you have to have when you're producing Wagner. You can't approach it, wow, what fantastic, beautiful music. This will suit my the tessitura of my lead singer perfectly. No, you've got to approach it as, what is the tension between the ugly ideology, the beauty of the music, and the agony of the man producing it? Um, that's all you can do. Shall we try and just tease that out a little bit further? I know that uh, Die Meisterzing is your favourite Opera, you've already alluded to some of the problematic in interpretations that have been in, in respect of his anti Semitism. 
that anti-Semitism, where does that come from? You've mentioned that it's in a, a broader intellectual trend at the day, but it has been said that there were also kind of personal aspects to it as well. The obvious personal aspects are, are that, you know, Mendelssohn and Meyerbeer, two famous uh, rivals. And of course, Meyerbeer was a kind of the Andrew Lloyd Webber of Paris and was hugely successful. And Wagner wasn't. His opera got booed off stage. Tannhäuser. This petty anti-Semitism is there. OK, but that's not why Wagner is an anti-Semite. So let's take it chunk by chunk. In the pre-1848 period, when he's a moderately successful opera composer, a quite revolutionary technique, uh, greater than all his contemporaries, I would argue. And he's going to throw all this away in a few years' time. But up until 1848, what is he politically? He is a young Hegelian. And so Hegel had been the sort of reactionary politics professor of, of, of Wilhelm in Germany. His famous claim was, you know, the state is the march of God through the world, justifying a progressive conservative monarchic rule. But the young Hegelians, his critics, were on a path from idealist philosophy to materialist philosophy. And the most important one is Ludwig Feuerbach. So Ludwig Feuerbach is an atheist. Uh, he doesn't think the, that the state is the march of God in the world. He wants a revolution against the state. And he is an atheist. But Feuerbach's atheism philosophical atheism and his materialism produces a critique of Christianity. And he says, look, Christianity is just the projection of all humanity. It's like a fetish object produced by, he says, this is a patronizing term, but by a primitive tribe. You know, we wouldn't use that term today. He's, he says, you know, the man on the cross is really us. And therefore we don't need to believe in God. What all we need to believe in is the redemptive power of love. And Feuerbach says, once you love humanity, you are a revolutionary because that must lead you to a project of perfecting humanity and overthrowing oppressive forces. Now, this was incredibly powerful in Wagner's circle in his youth. And some of his early operas are just attempts to play with that idea. Okay, then comes the 1848 revolution. 1849, the uprising in Dresden, he takes part in it. Um, he's on the barricades. He has to run away to Switzerland. And the, the revolution's finished. Okay, at this point, this is where I think Wagner was always a routine anti-Semite uh, before that. You'll read anti-Semitism in the works of Karl Marx at the, in the same period, anti-Semitic writing. But after the revolution, while Marx, for example, theorised the failure of the 1848 revolution politically, Wagner begins to do so racially. And what he starts to talk about is Franco-Judaic culture. He says the Franco-Judaic culture, which is the French Revolution and sort of finance capitalism, because remember in the, in the anti-Semitic lexicon, finance capitalism and Jews are always put together. So he says, what's caused the problem here is that our revolution wasn't German enough. It wasn't Aryan enough. It was polluted by alien sources. And almost immediately, just as he says, right, my whole oeuvre is over. I'm going to start again with a completely new thing called a music drama, which is going to be epic in scale and uniquely German drawing on German mythology, he also comes up with a critique of the classical music of his time as being too influenced by Franco-Judaic influences. So that's the turning point. Now, from that, we get a number of iterations of this. The first iteration is his critique of capitalism in The Ring of the Nibelung. But pretty soon after that, you begin to see the influence of Schopenhauer. You've not only got a revolutionary anti-Semitism, 
and nationalism, we very soon get added to it a profound philosophical pessimism. So if you're looking for the antecedents of Nazism, and I say that, that Wagner is not a fascist, the profound pessimism about humanity combined with this violent nationalist anti-Semitism is a pretty good starting point, isn't it, for what we now know, and you as a Germanist will, will be able to fill in the gaps there. It's a pretty good philosophical starting point for where he's going to end up. I actually looked up Judentum in the Mosaic, you know, this, this vile anti-Semitic trike. You can get the PDF, you Google it, and I read it in the German original only last week. And I was more shocked than I was expecting to be shocked. I don't, to be honest, I'd only previously read kind of digests of it and what some of the main ideas there. And what I took away from it was that there was, it was more than that kind of religious-based anti-Semitism. As you said, it had that kind of political aspect to it. But what troubled me the most was that it was a kind of a, a biologically based anti-Semitism. It's a move really from anti-Judaism, which is, you know, was a, was a tradition as old as the, the hills in, in, in Europe, to this kind of race-based uh, notion of anti-Semitism. And I was reminded of it when you were talking about Beckmesser in, in the Meistersingers. There's, there's a whole bit there about what differentiates the Jews, which makes them incapable of producing authentic uh, music, per se, authentic German music. And he talks about them being not at home in the German language, that there's this alien force. And he characterises the language by its shrillness and its screeching and all these kind of horrible stereotypes that are there that also provoke a kind of visceral revulsion. And while clearly, and you know, there isn't, there isn't this one line through to National Socialism from, from Wagner, you know, that tends to be when you view Wagner backwards from from 1933 and 1945 but it was that particular notion of you know that was racial and we, we might we might talk about this when we come to to Parsifal that I found I found the most deeply troubling um, aspect of it. No Wagner wrote the music if not the story of Parsifal under the influence of a racial theorist called Artur de Gobineau who wasn't an anti-Semite, unlike Wagner, but did have this theory of strong races and weak races. Like Wagner, he was a doomster. He believed in the inevitable decline of civilization because strong races were attracted to weak races and would breed with them. And it's a horrible 19th century scientific racist bullshit, let's be honest. But once you understand that, you can read Parsifal. So Amfortas is the Christian knight attracted to what in one version is the Arabic-looking Kundri, who robs him of his manhood, prevents him from fulfilling his role as def the defender of the Holy Grail, and only someone who has renounced sexual attraction can pull the irons out of the fire here, and that is a young lad who has no idea about anything. That's the, the, the Reinator or Parsifal. This is the overt meaning. It's what it means to Wagner. Some people dispute this, but I think it's clear. Nevertheless, it's a metaphor. It is also true that, you know, Hitler used to put on this and kind of, you know, think racist thoughts while he was playing the prelude to this opera. However, it is also true that Hitler and Goebbels had a big discussion about whether they should ever stage Parsifal because 
its Christian themes and its themes of redemption and compassion run right against the Nordic mythology and brutality of the actual official state ideology of Nazism. In fact, there's a discussion where they say, if we ever do put this on at Bayreuth after we win, of course, thankfully they didn't win, we'll probably have to strip it of all Christian uh, symbolism. You can certainly find the anti-Semitic and the kind of almost Christian fundamentalist themes. I always think about what, if I've staged it, I would stage it as a fundamentalist army, you know, of any religion. You know, they're a fundamentalist army who've been defeated, are in hiding, and are waiting for a new Messiah to put them out of their misery. And the misery has been caused by the carnal love of a woman from an inferior race. You can't avoid that being there. Once you know that, you can park some of it, just as Hitler wanted to park the beauty of it in a way. Once you know that, you you can see we could see its relationship to the earlier bourgeois revolutionary anti-Semitism of Wagner. But I think the overwhelming emotion is is that doom, is that renunciation, is that humanity's doomed, everything's in decline, and the source of the decline is actually just as much the the power of female sexuality as it is the ethnic difference of country, but I've never really confronted this. But the obvious question is, how can we even dare to try and enjoy music that has been produced by somebody for whom this is, at the very least, at all times, passive, but sometimes quite an active artistic prejudice? I mean, you know, I'm a music enthusiast, I'm a former professional, but I'm not a Germanist, and I'm interested in what else within German culture fits into that problematic yeah, well, I guess so. I mean, I think it is, and this is why thinking with Wagner, you know, and thinking with opera is kind of fascinating because, on the one hand, you might say that artists who hold repellent views, there's, there's plenty of them through history. There were very few who published them to the same effect as Wagner, but there are other literary figures who would hold similar views, who would be contemporaries. You might look into the even liberal writers like Thomas Mann, great um, Wagnerite that he was, although he had quite a, an ambivalent relationship to him. If you look at what he was saying in the run-up to the First World War about the triumph of the German Geist over over all of, of the, the, the rest of Europe, his thoughts of a, an apolitical man, those were hugely kind of controversial caused a split with his socialist-leaning brother Heinrich, and people came back to that in the, in the period after the, the Second World War. So I think that fundamental problem of what do we do with an artwork, the author of which, the composer of which, actually is reprehensible. And as we were saying earlier, you know, one alternative is, and that has been the case with, with Wagner and others, will be to say, OK, well, forget about all of that, you know. It's the music that counts. And there's a whole, there's a whole school of of literary and musical criticism, isn't there? You know, I, mean, I also studied some English literature and it was, you know, it's, it's the pure work of art, you know, it's the Elliot Bass, bracket everything else out. And the, the social political context, the life of the author isn't important at all. And what we're saying here, and I think is perhaps the takeaway from our conversation, is that um, the honest, nuanced, intellectually, I think, rigorous and kind of ethical thing to do is to be aware of that tension, to have it there all the time. Saw it very well done in a recent exhibition at Tate Britain called Hogarth and Europe. You know, I've always loved Hogarth's satirical etchings. You know, the, the, Hogarth's work to me is massive critique of early capitalism. But what happened is that they recurated using people of colour uh, and young people, this work. And what was pointed out to you that it, it's always been there. 
in many of the scenes Hogarth depicts, there is a black slave with a silver slave collar, unremarked, you know, often playing a sort of ironic part and certainly part of the action, even though the main action is often between lecherous men and loose women in, in Hogarth. But because they allowed a different kind of curation, you were then able to see how fundamental and key this image of the black slave was, and indeed the class-based imagery of gender. Upper-class women had agency, lower-class women were drunks. But in the end, it's much easier with Hogarth because no matter how racist and sexist and a product of a slave-owning society Hogarth is, it is a critique of capitalism. It's a critique of manners. It's a critique of corruption. And it's a critique of the, of the human condition. And, and I think once you get your head around this, no one's going to turn their face away and put their hand in front of it and say, no, I can't look at this. But once we know that certain characters in Wagner are indeed anti-Semitic stereotypes, it's much harder to do that. And that's why I think we are rabbiting on to each other here. But I think the whole purpose of doing so is to prepare listeners and uh, opera goers for, for an intelligent reading, an intelligent experience of, and an honest experience of what this is going to be. I, knowing this stuff, appreciate the work even more than before I did know it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, just as a, an aside, I noticed that um, the German Historical Museum in Berlin, only I think a fortnight or so ago, has just devoted its first ever exhibition to a composer. And of course, it's Richard Wagner. I've not seen the exhibition, I hasten to add, but from what I've been able to find out about it, it's called Richard Wagner and the Nationalisation of Feeling. And um, I guess it, some of it actually aligns quite well with what we've, we've been discussing. Um, he looks at the, this kind of four feelings that acted as driving forces for the circumstances of the time and for, for Wagner. And you've got alienation and belonging is one, there's eros and loathing, and the German word for that is eco. And loathing, actually, there's connotations of disgust in that. And that is actually addressing full-on some of this problematic. And I've got a, an academic interest in counter-memorials and um, organising a symposium on that at the moment. And I was interested to see that what they've done there is they've built in an installation, which is a sound collage that presents, in the darkness of a black box, historical recordings with anti Semitic Wagner quotations and translations into Yiddish. So it's actually that tension is present in the in the exhibition. So Paul, our, our conversation today is pretty much coinciding with Opera North's new concert staging of Parsifal, Wagner's last and and, and and great, some would say his greatest work. And I'm, I'm really intrigued to talk in a little bit more detail with you about it. But before we do, and, you know, we've mentioned The Ring, I mentioned Tristan, etc. Where do you see Pacifier fitting in in the broader corpus of works? So there are three groups of Wagner's operas. That everything up to 1848, most importantly, Lohengrin and Tannhäuser. And then this artistic break, he stops writing opera, he starts writing music drama, tries to create a total German theatre, the total work of art, the music, the costumes, the building. And the first, indeed, the life's work of, of, of this effort is The Ring of the Nibelungs, the four operas, three operas and a prelude. That's his attempt to recreate German mythology. You know, I mentioned Schopenhauer before. Really, it's a transitional work between the optimism and anti-capitalism of 
Feuerbach and 1848 and the gods, the gods of the aristocrats very clearly, you know, and, and they need to be brought down by a new kind of human being brought forth unintentionally, it's almost like sort of a a little version of the Communist Manifesto, this, a kind of human being brought forth unintentionally who can destroy the world of his powerful creators. You know, so that's Siegfried. And Siegfried, in many readings, you know, uh, George Bernard Shaw's readings and many others could in mind, Siegfried is the proletariat. And uh, he's also uh, sort of the heroic German man. Towards the end of the ring, I mean, he has a 10-year break in writing the last bit, Towards the end of the ring, he gets Schopenhauer and he gets, you know, quietism. He gets a kind of almost Buddhist rejection of the world. And so at the end of the ring that he wrote and then scrapped a whole song for Brynhilde, who destroys the world. It starts with, I saw the world end. How did I destroy the world? Through love and the renunciation. And he scrapped that speech, but that's really what the last bit of the ring's about. Okay. The Ring itself, those four operas, form kind of chunk two of the Wagner oeuvre. For me, the most interesting bit of the Wagner oeuvre is the last three operas, which depart from the formulaicness, this epic, spectacular grandeur of the Ring, which is about gods and dwarfs and dragons and birds that can speak human language. And the last three operas are about human beings, And for me, this is what redeems Wagner. For me, the signature trope of fascism is its anti-humanism. But one can construct very easily a reading of the last three works as humanist. Tristan, Utisolde, it's just about love. It's about the power and the absolutely destroying power of infatuation. Die Meistersinger is about community and the redemptive power of, again, renunciation. The hero of Die Meistersinger is not the good-looking blonde tenor who gets the girl. The hero of Die Meistersinger is the old middle-aged croaky guy who gives her away, who could have had her. And then we get Parsifal. And Parsifal is about redemption at a different level. He called it his last card. He said, I'm playing my last card here. This is the redemption of the redeemer. This is in a way, as we'll discuss, I think, a return to the themes of Christianity. Uh, Remember I said earlier, Feuerbach was a kind of anti-religious Christian. He, He just believed that the Christian ideal of love could liberate the world. What we get in Parsifal is the idea that a person who knows nothing about knowledge, certainly about carnal love, is a pure fool, can liberate the world through the refusal of it. That's really what Parsifal's about. So let's turn to Parsifal in greater detail, as you've already suggested. This is perhaps his most religious work in Germany. It's um, often associated with performances on Good Friday, uh, the time of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Um, He called it this, not a music drama, but this strange compound, a Bühnen Weifespiel. It's this kind of, it's inaugurating the stage at at Bayreuth. Um, It's also something that is festive, um, 
consecrated, I think is the term that is often, is often translated as. So there's a basically a, a mythological style framework in as much as it's built around the legend of the Holy Grail, which in the work is being guarded by a select company of knights. Um, we hear about the ruler of the kingdom of the Grail, um, Amfortas, who's been seduced by Kundry, kind of a mysterious protean figure who it turns out has been roaming the earth uh, ever since she mocked Christ at the crucifixion. The Grail legend, the Grail that Christ is said to have drunken out the Last Supper. In other versions, it's the Grail where the blood that flowed from his side, pierced by a spear. We have the spear as well by a Roman soldier as he hung on the cross. Amfortas has been on his quest to get the grail and, and he loses it and the Holy Spirit to a, an evil sorcerer by the name of Klingzor. And he suffers a seemingly incurable wound and he loses this spear, not least because he's been seduced by Kundry. Anyway, so... A prophecy reveals is that only a naive young man whose low compassion can heal Amfortas. And this notion of the pure fool, Parsifar, is given the task by a wise elder knight called Gurnamans. He embarks on his quest as Parsifar in the best Arthurian fashion. And after resisting the sexual temptations of the flower maidens and of Kundry herself, he seizes the Holy Spear that pierced Christ's side banishes the spell of the evil magician Klingzor and he returns eventually to the castle to perform this climatic act of healing. Now those are the, the bare bones of this particular work. So Paul, you're talking about its, its religiosity and particularly this notion of redemption and I think I'm right in saying when we think of Schopenhauer that it was inflected by Buddhism there was this notion in Buddhism that this kind of the renunciation of the self. But what struck me and, and moved me in Parsifal was this notion of compassion, mitleid as it's termed in German, and that in showing compassion and actually receiving compassion, there is this healing, curative force. And that strikes me as, a, as an enormously powerful message. Remember, Wagner knows that he is not long for this world. He knows it's his last opera. He was toying with what, an opera based around Buddha, Gautama, but he, did, he went for this one and, and incorporated those themes in it. And if we compare it to the impulse behind the early operas, which is the redemption of the world through love, this is the renunciation of the world and the renunciation of all forms of sexual love as well. Let's take it back to its elements. I love to think about the elements. There is that aspect of, artistic criticism that says just study the work and if you do that then you could say right okay what's this about it's about a bunch of guys okay there's one woman Kundry and then there are a bunch of flower maidens who turn up halfway through to seduce Parsifal who's the you know, the redeemer it's an opera about men and what are these men they are armed religious knights so they're a mixture of monks and an army and they've been defeated that's the other thing. And then what clutters their world are the, the, the sort of physical relics of Christianity. So you have, as you say, on stage, eventually we get on stage. We never see the Holy Grail, but in some productions you do see a grail. Or it's I saw one at uh, the Royal Opera where the grail was a person, a kind of sick person. But, OK, the grail is there. The grail is hidden and then opened and worshipped. 
Okay, so we've got the grail. We've got the spear that pierced Christ's side. And we've got all of that placed into a story that retells the Christian legend of redemption in pure human terms. And the key phrase, you've already referred to it, Enlightened through compassion, the innocent fool, wait for him, the appointed one. That's almost the theme tune. You hear it from this boy's choir in the heavens, sings it as Parsifal is about to approach. So let's think about that phrase. He's enlightened through compassion. So he's made knowledgeable only at the moment that he feels connection and compassion for another human being. And he is an innocent fool. Those two words are important. He's a complete fool. He knows nothing, keeps making massive mistakes. He's been wandering in the jungle for years, can't, can't find his own way home, doesn't really know his own name, that kind of fool. And he's innocent. He's never known physical love. No, that's not the Christian story at all. Christ is not an innocent fool. We both went to a Catholic school. We know Christ is, a, in, in the Christian religion, God made man with all the human failings. So why? Why are we getting this? And Wagner gives us a clue to it in one of his letters. He says, look, think of this trilogy, Adam, Eve, Christ. In Parsifal, it's Amfortas, Kundri, the temptress, Parsifal. And then he says, what I'm trying to do is to put them together. I don't think we know whether he ever succeeds, but his view of the way forward for a doomed human race was to renounce everything but to, in the process of renouncing, to show compassion for fellow humans who are also doomed with you. I mean, it's a terribly depressing thing, but in its beauty, in the beauty of that act of compassion, he more or less explores every human emotion adjacent to it in the music. So we started our conversation with the music. You've just given me a nice segue to maybe rounding things up with the music and I guess the question to you as a musicologist is how are these ideas which one as, as a non-musicologist kind of feels responds to almost intuitively how are these grasped and embodied in Wagner's music well we know that in the writing of the ring he developed this technique of light motiven of light motives or themes. Now, there's a kind of opera goer that sits there with a little book trying to spot the themes. I advise against this because actually <laughs> what's beautiful about the themes is that they always develop. And in fact, in many of the operas, they're all related to each other. It's certainly true in The Ring. They're like branches off a rose tree that have come from a central stem that you can understand them all as a kind of rose branch. Now, there are parts of Parsifal where he's at his most chromatic. By chromatic, we mean you're pushing to the very limits Western tonal music, the tonal musical language that emerges with Haydn and Mozart. If you, if you ever get to the third act, and the act three prelude, that is a beautiful, wide, expansive, almost hangs between the world of tonality and 
I hate tonality, that phrase. However, there are large chunks of Parsifal that are straightforward key of C marches and hymns that are not in that chromatic romantic world. They're an expression of power and certainty. So we've heard that in, in some respects um, Wagner, particularly in his approach to tonality and harmony, actually ushered in modernism in, in music. But at the same time, there's this anti-modernity there. That's the paradox. I mean, if you think about Parsifal, he's enlightened only through compassion, not by knowledge. And that is a, a fundamental theme of far-right thinking, anti-modernity. We see it at the moment in Russia. The philosopher Alexander Dugin, you know, wants to cancel 400 years of enlightenment thought. Okay, but... Wagner himself is the bridge to modernism in music in this way, in his increasingly chromatic departure from the basic diatonic scales that we learn do, re, mi in music. He begins to push the music into an indeterminate space, into a space where sometimes you don't know what key it's in or how it's going to end, how it's going to resolve. And this famously happens in the first few bars of his opera Tristan und Isolde, where the Tristan chord was deemed uh, not in the textbook. We don't really know what key it is, is it in, and where is it going to resolve? And then he builds wave after wave of erotic desire, an eroticism that is never fulfilled. He knows exactly what he's doing. This is an experience of sex that never ends in the usual way it ends. So by moving his music into that space of pantonalism, of a tonalism that's indeterminate, he then opens the next phase of musical development, above all for the so-called second Viennese school, Schoenberg, Webern and Berg, who in between 1906 and 1911 experimented very rapidly with music that was purposely not in any key. Most music retreated from atonality the same way as a lot of art retreated from abstraction back to representation, but it was never the same again. And I think most histories of music would say that the Tristan chord is the turning point from the 19th century into the 20th century, even though it's written in about 1867. The beauty of Parsifal to me resides in the extremes to which he pushed the chromaticism, the superb complexity of the way he develops and weaves the themes together. And yet, no matter how different an emotion or action he's trying to depict, the underlying thing, the entire thing, hangs together as a confession. If you've ever been through that process of absolute grief-stricken remorse, the entire work is a work of remorse. And for it, that alone, you could strip the words out of it and simply play all the all the instrumental bits. That's why it's a masterpiece.
to me really is to say thank you to you Paul that's been absolutely fantastic I think we've really had a good think about Wagner and we've been thinking with opera more broadly and, and I think some of the the questions that we've alighted on you know are applicable to all disciplines of art as well not least you know reflections on how we deal with an artist who's in their past or present has represented wholly objectionable and reprehensible beliefs uh, but if we just cancel him or her we run the risk of losing the works all together but if we separate from the cultural context um, from which the artist created the work we lose important ways of accessing that work and understanding it so thank you ever so much Paul and uh, I can recommend to listeners out there on BBC Sands there are two excellent um, um, documentaries I guess that you produced if I'm right in saying at the time of the bicentenary and I can certainly commend those to everyone thank you very much indeed it's been great and enjoy the music thank you <laughs> Listening to Thinking with Opera, produced by the Dare Partnership between Opera North and the University of Leeds. <laughs>